welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my podcast that covers brand new movies in the theaters. You can find a link to that on my website. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Go to Quipster.net for all the details. Today, we're going to be continuing on. This is the fifth of a six-part series looking at the early Star Trek films. This is the last one that actually covers the 1980s. It appeared in 1989. I'm talking about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. It's a PG-rated film. It does have some language and violence. The runtime is an hour and 47 minutes. William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, George Takei, Walter Koenig, Nichelle Nichols, all reappear in the series for this film. Newcomer Lawrence Luckinbill gets a sizable supporting role. Todd Bryant, Charles Cooper, David Warner, Cynthia Gow, Spice Williams, and George Murdoch appear in smaller roles. The director here is William Shatner, and the screenplay credited to David Lowry. Now, Star Trek V marks William Shatner's debut as a feature film director. He had some prior directorial experience, kind of like Leonard Nimoy, due to directing stage productions and also television episodes. T.J. Hooker, he directed about 10 episodes or so there. Due to the so-called Favored Nations contract that stipulated that he and Nimoy get equal benefits, Paramount really had little choice but to let Shatner direct. Nimoy directed two feature films. Shatner has to have the same opportunity. After the successes of Star Trek's 2 through 4, the producer of those films, Harv Bennett, ended up wanting to move on from the Star Trek series. He had just signed a three-year deal with Paramount to develop movie projects that he wanted to make. He was feeling unappreciated after he ended up butting heads with Leonard Nimoy on Star Trek 4, and he constantly would get undermined by Gene Roddenberry, no matter what film it was in Star Trek, and he did not want to relive all of that with Shatner. Shatner ended up going out, he met with Bennett, he begged him to reconsider, and he told him that he would have absolute final say, and Bennett accepted. Now, for our screenwriting chores, Shatner ended up pursuing Eric Van Lusbader. He's an author of a series of best-selling ninja novels at the time. I think he did some of the Bourne books, the later Bourne books, in more recent years. He was going to be brought in to do the script based on a story that Shatner had in mind. And the studio ended up passing on Lusbader because of, one, his million-dollar asking price was just too high. And also, he, on top of that, wanted to retain rights to the story after he wrote it. So Shatner ended up writing a 14-page story outline himself, and it was titled at that time, Star Trek, An Act of Love. And in this story, a rogue Vulcan prophet named Czar hijacks the Enterprise. He takes the Enterprise crew to a distant planet where he feels that God resides. And after getting through the Great Barrier to go where no one has gone before, they all end up meeting God, only to discover he's not God. He's actually the devil. Satan, in disguise. They're literally in hell. That was the main premise that Shatner had come up with. And the inspiration for the story came when Shatner was watching television. He was observing televangelists, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker specifically, who claimed that they talked to God. And he wondered why God chose them to talk to, of all people, and why he needed them, given that God is almighty. And some religious leaders a lot of religious leaders were doing despicable things, claiming that God told them to. And that made Shatner question whether maybe it was the devil 
posing as God, fooling them all into committing evil. Bennett was not particularly fond of this idea. He thought it was a little bit similar to Star Trek The Motion Pictures plot, but Paramount approved it on the condition that Shatner peppered the dark plot here with a lot of comedy, kind of like Star Trek IV. They were on a roll. They wanted to continue that role. Now, Shatner stated that his shift toward the spiritual side of things for Star Trek was due to the aging of these characters. They naturally would be at a place where they began to think about death and maybe the possibility of the afterlife. And there was going to be a moral lesson for this film, which is God is not a literal being that you meet on a planet out in outer space. God lives inside each one of us, and that's where we will find God. And he felt that this would be a meaningful adventure for those viewers who have been with the characters and seen them grow into old age. And some of those viewers grew old with them as well. Shatner and Bennett ended up smoothing out some of the story wrinkles, some of the disagreements that they had, and they wanted to maintain intrigue by reducing the over-explaining of Cybok's rationale for hijacking the Enterprise early on to search for God. We should question whether Cybok is a hero or a madman. Cybok saw himself as a hero. Kirk thought he must be a madman. So they ended up honing the story, and as they worked on it, Bennett started to change his opinion. He felt they actually might pull this off. If the journey could be as fun and exhilarating as a roller coaster ride, audiences might overlook any disappointments that they had with the elements of the climax. But still, Paramount and Bennett developed some cold feet regarding whether God or Satan should exist in the ending, literally, they felt that many viewers might find the depiction offensive to their own beliefs, especially those who are non-Christian or maybe even atheist. And series creator and executive consultant Gene Roddenberry agreed with that. He felt that Star Trek really should avoid literal religious themes. Now, it's with some irony, and if you heard my review for Star Trek The Motion Picture, Roddenberry did go down a strikingly similar road when he wrote The God Thing, which was this rejected idea for the first film that he had in mind in which the Enterprise crew encounters, like this one, God, and he's revealed later to be an ultra-powerful alien pretending to be God. And yet now he was arguing that Shatner's idea resorted to fantasy, not science fiction. He consulted science fiction authors Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke. They both agreed that Shatner's ideas were indeed childish for sci-fi, and they were possibly offensive to people of faith. And the only way to retain science fiction integrity is for God to be revealed as some sort of super alien here. Having the crew meet the real God, or maybe real devil, eroded the established scientific foundation of Star Trek. Roddenberry felt that the script really had more Star Wars influences here than Star Trek, and especially Cybok's effortless Jedi-like manner of manipulating the Enterprise crew to do his bidding with just tapping into their thoughts. Roddenberry also despised using the secondary players of Star Trek as comic relief to set up obvious jokes while the others get to play heroes. He also hated how the characters were so easily turned to side with Cybok without even questioning him or even having any skepticism or disbelief at all in the main reason for the adventure ahead. And it was revealed years later by someone who was working with Roddenberry's office that Roddenberry's opposition was likely stemming from feeling hurt by the fact that Paramount greenlit Shatner's story when his own version of that same story had been dismissed without even an argument. Now, God becoming a super alien was seen as a compromise to all sides, 
but they still needed someone to write this script. So both Bennett and Shatner courted Nicholas Meyer, the director of Star Trek II and also the screenwriter, and also the screenwriter for that as well as elements of Star Trek IV, but he had his hands full. He was directing 1988's The Deceivers at the time. So Bennett ended up pouring through over 100 unproduced scripts to try to find just the right voice. And he came across this incisive and clever and very witty screenplay for what would later become the 1990 film called Flashback. And it was by David Lowery, who Paramount happened to have under contract. He had one screenplay to his credit. It was 1984's Dreamscape, which Shatner and Bennett watched and enjoyed. And they found Lowry, when they met him in person, to be enthusiastic and personable and very funny. The perfect fit for the kind of movie that they wanted to achieve. Now, secretly, David Lowry had been reluctant, but he felt he wasn't in a position at that time to say no. He did have some familiarity with Star Trek, but he wasn't particularly a fan. So he wasn't sure if he was deep down, the right guy, even though he consented. The plans were to release the film for Christmas in 1988. But there was a prolonged Writers Guild of America strike that ended up tightening the pre-production and the shooting schedule. So that was starting to waffle the release date there. In the downtime, Shatner used his time to write the first in his series of what would become his Tech War series of novels. And meanwhile, Paramount had yet to secure contracts for the cast, and that left Nimoy wide open, and he was free to direct Touchstone's The Good Mother, and that really is what ended up pushing the release of Star Trek V to the next year, to the summer of 1989. There also was a scare that would develop when DeForest Kelly suffered a collapsed colon that required major surgery, but Luckily, he recovered in time for the scheduled shoot after that. And during this period, Shatner decided he would like to do something more with the story. He'd like to soften the nature of Czar. He actually changed Czar's name to Cybok to conform with traditional Vulcan naming conventions. And then Shatner began to have second thoughts about him coming across as this intense and evil terrorist or some sort of second-rate version of Khan. So he added more nuance to the character there. Now, when the strike ended... Lowry ended up revising the script with these new ideas Shatner had. Now, Shatner himself ended up having to fly to the Himalayas at that time for a two-week stint to fulfill his obligation to participate in this environmental-minded miniseries for TBS called Voice of the Planet. And when he returned after those two weeks, Shatner discovered that Bennett and Lowry had made some major script changes without his knowledge or his approval. They thought Shatner was going to love their ideas, but instead he felt completely betrayed. They had written out the search for God altogether from his story. And instead, the quest involved finding this mythical land, something similar to Shangri-La from Lost Horizon. It was going to be called Shakari, and that Shakari was named in honor of Sean Connery, who had left the Cybok role to do another Paramount feature, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Shatner was understandably livid. He immediately fought them to restore his original vision, and he won because he insisted they drifted not only too far from his story, but too far from Star Trek. God, quote-unquote, was placed back into the script, although he did consent to retain the name of Shakari because he thought it would be good to name the place that Cybok is seeking for the narrative purposes. Next, they all ended up working on the motivations for the characters because they did not commit mutiny against Cybok. 
So they needed an explanation, especially for Spock, who is immune to Cybok's emotional manipulation. Cybok at that point became Spock's half-brother, and despite all of that, Nimoy still vehemently protested. He stated that, relative or not, Spock would never betray Captain Kirk. DeForest Kelly asserted Bones would not either, and that prompted another major script revision to come. Now, worst news for Shatner and his story, Studio Bean Counters estimated that the script elements within his story would greatly exceed their allotted budget, and they would need to scale back. No sweeping panoramas, no Lawrence of Arabia-type cavalry of soldiers on horseback riding across the desert, no rivers of fire, no gargoyles, no angels, no demons flinging thunderbolts, all of those elements that were in the script that Shatner thought would make for some great cinema. Shatner ended up replacing gargoyles with an idea to have several stony goliaths breaking free from the nearby mountains, but Paramount said that that would be way too expensive for just a minute of screen time. They would only fund one rock man. Eventually, that Rockman 2 was cut because it ended up playing unconvincingly, and Shatner soon discovered that there was an old adage that came true. The key to failure is trying to please everyone. So the final plot, after all of their wrangling and chipping down of the ideas, was this. The first impromptu mission of the new Enterprise requires them to travel through the neutral zone to this nearly desolate planet called Nimbus 3, otherwise known as the Planet of Galactic Peace, where there's a messianic Vulcan known as Cybok, who's placed several high-ranking ambassadors as hostages. Cybok ends up hijacking the Enterprise for this odyssey through the Great Barrier, a place that no other ship has successfully breached, to find the fabled Shakari, from which life is said to have sprung forth. And Cybok seeks to find there the higher being who has beckoned him to spread his word. And the question we have is, is Cybok this madman, or is he a visionary anointed with divine inspiration? Much more to the story than that, but I won't get into any major spoilers here. Now, due to the themes and the plot elements, Shatner's film had the subtitle, The Final Frontier, which some interpreted as this, meaning that it was the final film for the original crew. And Parma ended up fueling further speculation here by stating that there were actually no plans for any future Star Treks going into Star Trek V, and that the expense and the busy schedules of Shatner and Nimoy made it unlikely to happen anyway. But in reality, Paramount actually wanted to see how Shatner's film performed before they would let him direct the next one. So when news leaked that the plot involved the Enterprise crew meeting God, further rumors ended up spreading that the crew dies at the end, which they did not want people to think or they might not come out to see the film. The shoot, once it did take place, it was in California locations. You had Yosemite National Park, the Mojave Desert the desiccated bed of Owens Lake, and the Trona Pinnacles that feature famously in the finale. Budgetary restrictions, though, forced some of the additional location shooting they had in mind to be done in sound stages at Paramount Studios. Now, Shatner here, once he started, departed from Gene Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek through this more realistic and less utopian vision of space exploration. We witness attempts at galactic peace falling apart, malaise and squabbling. Nimbus 3 scenes look a lot like Mad Max, except without the high-octane action sequences. Shatner here was envisioning a western in space. He would use primitive weaponry and have horses, which happened to be a passion of Shatner's. He originally wanted unicorns, but that idea was thankfully shot down. The subtitle of The Final Frontier, at least to Shatner, was meant to evoke the frontier-based westerns. It did have a nod to the afterlife. That was another key element of the idea. 
Not to mention the fact that the final frontier does feature every week on the original Star Trek as a phrase. Lawrence Luckinbill here, he actually took the Cybok role, not Sean Connery. He was discovered by Shatner while he was channel surfing. Luckinbill was playing LBJ in this one-man show that was televised for PBS called Linden, and Shatner immediately called up Luckinbill about the part, and Luckinbill accepted right there immediately. Coincidentally, Luckinbill happens to be attached to Star Trek royalty. He's the husband of Lucy Arnaz, the daughter of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, whose Desilu Productions developed Star Trek originally into a TV series back in the 1960s. According to Luck and Bill, Nimoy was initially standoffish with him once he was on the set, and he speculated there were some sour grapes there felt by Nimoy because there was a rumor that Nimoy wanted to play not only Spock, but Cybok in a dual role, but he was talked out of it because Cybok was not supposed to be Spock's twin. He was his half-brother, and making them appear the same just did not seem quite right. Catherine Hicks, if you remember Star Trek IV, she played Dr. Jillian Taylor. She was asked to return for a small appearance. It was rumored to be a scene where she significantly marries James T. Kirk. However, she ended up declining the role because she didn't want to come back to only do a cameo. They weren't going to offer her anything more than that, though. Once it was all said and done, Shatner ended up feeling that the 18-week post-production schedule was unbearably restrictive. Although the budget was a series-high $32 million, a lot of that went to securing the returning actors. Shatner and Nimoy themselves commanded $6 million each. DeForest Kelly and George Takei also required considerable pay increases to return. Specifically, George Takei did not want to come back, especially because he basically despised William Shatner and did not want to do a film in which he was the director. But Shatner reached out and convinced him to come back. Due to the difficulty of getting the cast back together, Hard Bennett suggested that they film Star Trek's five and six back-to-back, but Paramount deemed this as financially risky. They still wanted to see how Star Trek V fared before they would make a sixth. Now, for special effects, industrial light magic. They were pretty expensive, but they were also busy with other projects. Their A-team was working on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Their B-team was working on Ghostbusters 2, and what was left they did not want to pay the exorbitant fees for. So they ended up shopping around to other special effects houses. They auditioned them by having them produce an image of God. And the winner was Grand Farron's company, Associates and Farron from the East Coast. His credits include Altered States and Little Shop of Horrors. And despite having the highest budget of any Star Trek film to that point, the money for visual effects was extremely tight, as was the schedule. And it required Associates and Farron to have to reuse models from previous films and to place them on rear projected backgrounds instead of the more modern blue screening which resulted in some muddy and low-tech visuals that a lot of people did not enjoy. And some shots were repurposed from prior films, at least the good-looking ones, and the sets had to be scaled down, including a rebuild of the Enterprise Bridge at a smaller scale, like a three-quarter scale, to save cost, while other sets were borrowed from the sound stages of Star Trek The Next Generation. Once it was complete, Shatner's desired cut, it ran just a little bit over two hours, and Paramount wanted him to cut that down to 105 minutes to squeeze an extra theatrical showing per theater. Shatner felt that any further cuts, though, would hurt his picture, and at this point, Harv Bennett ended up taking control. He winnowed Shatner's cut to Paramount's desired length, 
This rough cut without music or completed effects played for test screenings, but they did not meet well at all. In fact, they elicited snickers at inappropriate times, starting with the visage of a portly James Kirk scaling El Capitan freehand. The special effects that were substituted in the film had starships that looked like cardboard cutouts that were flying around. The audience found all of this laughable, and applause was scarce at the end. And that all created a lot of negative buzz surrounding the picture from then on. And Paramount ended up having to employ damage control to try to curtail these rumors. They claimed that initial test audiences were seeing an incomplete work print. Bennett ended up cutting five additional minutes from the ending, and he added an expository sequence to make Kirk's rescue less confusing for audiences. And then they ended up playing that to test audiences, and they received better success. So they were going to go with it at that point. And once it was released into theaters, despite negative press, Star Trek V ended up debuting atop the U.S. box office. It earned $17 million in its opening weekend, the largest opening for a Star Trek film to that date. However, it did fall out of the top 10 within three weeks, shockingly got knocked out, earning only $52 million in its entire run, the series' worst performing, at least until Star Trek Nemesis. The Star Trek V faced brutal competition in the summer of 1989, Competition included Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Batman. That was especially a big blockbuster. You know, even a great Star Trek film would have had trouble competing against the likes of these big blockbusters. And this was also the first Star Trek film released during the run of Star Trek The Next Generation on television. And it was thought that that sated the fans' hunger for anything Star Trek because they had their fix week after week. Harv Bennett likened that to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving would not be a big deal if you dined on turkey every day. But beyond all of this, Star Trek was deemed to be a mediocre to poor movie by many people. Shatner ends up starting the film relatively poorly. He has an obvious stunt double scaling the stony face of Yosemite's El Capitan. Now, Kirk is not anywhere near the shape to climb such a daunting face, but maybe due to Shatner's ego, he thinks otherwise. The scene does get even sillier after that. Spock appears in physics-defying jet boots, which he uses to save the falling captain from certain death, even when Spock is upside down. I don't know how that happens. And then it gets into the realm of schmaltz. There's this campfire scene that pokes fun at Spock's logical stoicism, and then McCoy and Kirk seeing a rendition of Row Your Boat. I mean, it's all a little too much. It's a little too out of the ordinary. And it does not end there. The film really is a compendium of some of the series' most embarrassing character scenes. You have Scotty not being able to walk around the Enterprise without conking his head. You have Sulu just kind of winging it, trying to fly a shuttle. You have Uhura, who does a very sultry, naked fan dance while she ends up singing for a group of ogling barbarians. The cast, though, did have a good time making the film. They found relief that working under Shatner's direction was actually enjoyable and productive, given that they despised his prima donna demands as an actor, and they found him thoughtful and patient and encouraging, and he didn't once blame the talent for its shortcomings. He cited his own inexperience and the lack of funds as the main obstacles to making Star Trek V ultimately successful. It is widely regarded as the series' worst, and it was Shatner's chance here to join Nimoy in crafting a Star Trek story and directing it himself. And there is a small contingent of Star Trek loyalists that feel that Star Trek V's tackling of thought-provoking moral questions honors the spirit of the TV show very well. But its detractors, which I think outnumber them, take the flip side. They feel that this really should have been relegated to an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. The movies should be kept as the platforms for stories that had 
broader cinematic appeal. The search for God certainly is worthy of a major Star Trek event, and it really could make a thought-provoking movie, though, but unfortunately, Shatner did make those rookie directorial mistakes, and this studio made worse financial ones, so it really was not an appealing cinematic experience for many. Shatner does go against grain here by showcasing the characters that we followed for decades in a very new and different light. He felt that the crew's conversations should become more like longtime Conrad, so they skipped out on Starfleet formalities, which made it a little off-putting. Some informality maybe in keeping with a lighter tone that was brought forth from Star Trek IV, but I think Shatner continues fumbling his characterizations. He himself plays his part less like Kirk and a lot more like Shatner, who's kind of a lovable goof, and other characters come across as shallow parodies of themselves. It's a little too late in the series, I think, to paint them as anything other than what we've already come to know. So when we see something like a flirtatious relationship erupt between Uhura and Scotty, I think a lot of viewers ended up recoiling from the absurdity of that notion. Even if the ending does play confusing and anticlimactic, I think that, giving credit here, there's still an ample amount of suspense leading to the approach to Shakari. I think the best element of the entire production is the fact that they returned Jerry Goldsmith as the composer. He does emulate the work that he did for Star Trek The Motion Picture, but it still generates a captivating sense of adventure and mystique. I think that's very fitting with Star Trek. If something needs to be trimmed out, in my opinion, I think it's this needless subplot that involves this bored Klingon captain named Claw going after the Enterprise in this Klingon bird of prey to set up, I guess, stakes for the climax. And then there's this light show finale that raises more questions than answers and leaves a lot of viewers confounded and dissatisfied. Now, the first film that was directed by Leonard Nimoy, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, it barely had Spock in it. And I think here, Shatner's attempt comes off more like a vanity piece. Maybe he needed to share the experience with a lot of these other characters to make it balance out. It never quite gels. Despite some decent moments and some interesting philosophical themes to play with, Shatner's fast and loose Star Trek is not really in keeping with Gene Roddenberry's, and many fans end up rejecting this as a flawed entry, maybe even not part of the series. It's a lot like the Enterprise A in the film. It's clunky. It's not really ready for a real adventure. It gets the job done, but in the end... It's really not the kind of vehicle that I think a lot of people had confidence in. Star Trek IV, the previous film, had received four Oscar nominations. This received none, but it did receive some nominations. Star Trek V received Golden Raspberries, the Razzies nominations for the worst pictures of the year. Shatner won for Worst Director and Worst Actor, and the film won Worst Picture for 1989. Unfortunately, not a distinction they wanted to tout. Nominations for the Razzies also went to DeForest Kelly for Worst Supporting Actor and David Lowry for Worst Screenplay. Now, after the acclaimed release of the Director's Edition DVD for Star Trek The Motion Picture, which featured a, a tighter re-edit and substantially improved effects, Shanner had an idea that he wanted to do that for his own film. He asked Paramount if he could go back into the studio and redo the effects and the editing for Star Trek V, but they ended up declining. I guess they didn't want to throw good money after bad. Although this film is considered canon by the Star Trek powers that be, Star Trek VI ended up ignoring Star Trek V altogether, as did practically all Star Trek novels, Star Trek comics, and Star Trek TV shows that followed. It's very rare to find an instance where they refer back to this film. So you can watch it, or you can not. It doesn't matter. Merrily, 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 Star Trek V is but a dream. And that's why I cannot quite 
recommend Star Trek V, despite some qualities that I do admire. I give this film a shot once in a while just to see if my opinion will change on it. It's such a close call because I love Star Trek so much, but yet it just doesn't quite get it all together. And on my scale, that means it's a two and a half star film. Two and a half stars denoting that it's a movie that had the tools, it had the talent to be a film that I could recommend to most people, but it just falls short because of something. I think here, the amount of compromises that needed to be made with Paramount were just too significant, and the original vision was just not there. I think the real problem, though, unfortunately, and I like William Shatner, but as a director, I think he should have realized early on that his vision needed to be kept modest with the budget, and he needed to rethink the entire picture from the basis of that. In the end, it just never quite coalesced into a meaningful whole. So two and a half stars is the best I can give Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. I know a lot of people probably have their own thoughts on Star Trek V, especially those people who love this film and are coming into this hoping that they would hear a fan take. I am a fan of the Star Trek series, and to a very small effect, I like some of the stuff I see in Star Trek V, but yeah, I just could not wholeheartedly be somebody who could recommend it to most people. So if you have your own thoughts on this, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. You can go to quipster.net. You can find links there to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, my Instagram, all of those ways you can follow me and get in touch. Next week, of course, we're going to continue on with the very final film in where I'm going to be covering Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. It's not an 80s film. It did come out in 1991. But in order to cap out the original cast Star Trek films, I'm going to end it there. Even though Star Trek Generations, which came out after that, does feature three of the actors from the original series. But I consider that a next generation film. So I will leave it at Star Trek VI for next week. So check that out before I get into it. So until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip through the Great Barrier into Shakari and then around the world in 80s movies. <laughs>